Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, David Harrell and Dan Lefkowitz discuss dividend growth stocks. Christine Benz gives you a retirement policy to-do list. Patricia Wee and Susan Jabinski talk 529 plans. Carol Hedorowitz and Catherine Lynch break down rising interest rates. Let's get started with David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management with Dan Lefkowitz from Morningstar, Inc. I'm David Harrell, editor of Morningstar Dividend Investor Newsletter, and I'm here today with Dan Lefkowitz, who is a strategist with Morningstar's Indexes Group. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, David. Okay. Could you tell me a little about your role with the Indexes team? Sure. So uh, I produce research that's focused on Morningstar's proprietary range of indexes uh, across asset class, so stocks, bonds, multi-asset, and investment type. So traditional market exposure indexes, strategic beta, styles, dividends, ESG, etc. Okay, great. Now, you recently released a research report on the appeal of dividend growth investing, uh, especially in today's market where we have uh, high inflation, rising interest rates, and an incredible amount of day-to-day volatility, at least within the U.S. equity market. Now, in your report, you made a a number of comparisons using three of the Morningstar indexes. I believe it was U.S. dividend growth, uh, the U.S. market index, and the U.S. High Dividend Yield Index. Can you tell me a little bit about those three indexes, their construction, and maybe the types of companies we find in each of them? Sure. So the Morningstar U.S. Dividend Growth Index uh, includes companies that have grown their payouts to shareholders for five consecutive years uh, mm-hmm. with some screens for dividend durability. Uh, it's currently at about 420 uh, stocks, and it uh, weights by available dividends. Okay. The Morningstar U.S. Market Index is our broad gauge of the uh, equity market across large, mid, and small cap stocks. It's currently at about 1,600 uh, companies, and it is market capitalization weighted. Okay. And then the high dividend index is the higher yielding half of the U.S. equity market. Okay. Uh, and it is also market capitalization weighted. It's currently at about 440 uh, stocks. Okay. And so there's there's clearly some overlap among those three indexes. Yeah. So stocks could appear literally in all three. Absolutely. So it could be. Okay. Got it. All right. So within your report, uh, one thing you were noting was that sort of the types of firms in the dividend growth index, uh, the companies that, as you say, were able to increase their dividends uh, on an annual basis for at least five five consecutive years, tend to be well positioned. And you also noted that um, of the three indexes, the dividend growth index was the one with the highest percentage of constituents that had a wide economic moat rating for Morningstar analysts, correct? Yeah, that's right. If you if you look at uh, companies that are consistently growing their shareholder payouts, they tend to be really well positioned. They tend to have competitive advantages or economic moats in Morningstar equity research uh, parlance. And that's relevant to inflation because companies that have moats around their businesses are better able to pass along uh, price increases than a no-moat business. So that they have pricing power, which is a good thing to have in today's environment. Got it. So, Dan, when you plotted sort of the overall investment style of these three indexes, you found that the uh, high yield was the furthest to the left on the style box in the value column. Uh, The dividend growth was a little to the right of that. 
and then the overall U.S. market was closest to the growth side of the spectrum, correct? That's right. If you look at the kinds of companies that uh, have high dividend yields, they tend to be in sort of value sectors like mm-hmm. uh, industrials, financials, energy, basic materials. Uh, those kind of companies are paying out a very high uh, portion of their earnings in the form of dividends. Uh, dividend growth has a value tilt as mm-hmm. well, but it's much closer to the core section of the style box than that high yield um, segment of the market. So Apple and Microsoft are both in our uh, dividend growth index. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tend to see more technology uh, co- companies than uh, the high yield segment. Uh, but if you look at the U.S. equity market overall, uh, the, the extent to which technology and technology-oriented stocks have dominated for so many years, the overall market is quite growth-leaning uh, right. at this point. And if you look at some of the biggest names in the U.S. market, uh, mega caps like Amazon and Alphabet, um, Tesla, Meta, these stocks uh, don't pay dividends at all. Right. right. So what did you see when you looked at the volatility of those returns as measured by standard deviation? Yeah, so our dividend growth index uh, is less volatile, uh, has been less volatile than both the overall market as well as the high yield segment. So it hasn't uh, risen as high during good times. It hasn't fallen as far uh, during bad times. That's consistent with what you'd expect from its high quality uh, sort of orientation. Okay, so uh, less current income than a high-yield strategy, but a little more uh, consistent performance. That's right. A lot of investors use uh, dividend growth strategies as sort of a core defensive way of participating in the equity market, less about income, more about long-term total return. Got it. So in your report, you were also looking at, I think you said you'd use dividend growth as sort of a lens uh, for different sectors or or, uh, market uh, different industries. And you were noting uh, some that were uh, sort of on the rise or or, or some that uh, were less well positioned. I was wondering if you could highlight some of those and then maybe for some of those that are are, are sort of better positioned today, uh, maybe give us some names uh, of individual stocks in there, particularly ones that are, are trading at discounts uh, to their current fair value. Yeah, so I think dividend growth is a really interesting lens into where in the market you know you see improving and declining uh, fortunes. Mm-hmm. So some of the areas where our dividend growth index is overweight relative to the market as well as to the high yield uh, section are uh, financials, diversified banks, as well as regional banks. So I'd uh, cite names like Citigroup and Truist Financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the healthcare space, you've got pharma companies like Merck, uh, medical device companies like Medtronic. Uh, within industrials, uh, aerospace and defense, a name like Raytheon, I'd Mm -hmm. mention, um, Emerson Electric and Cummins, and then semiconductors, uh, which used to be sort of a cyclical area and I think is becoming more of a secular growth story. So names like uh, Skyworks and uh, LAM Research and Texas Instruments. Great. Great. Well, Dan, thanks for sharing your insights. Great having you here. Thanks, David. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Next, here is Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. to tell you why you need investment and retirement policy statements. I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar. We're almost halfway through a very volatile year, and Morningstar's Christine Benz thinks it's a good time to make sure that you have a true north for your investment in retirement plans. She's here with me today to discuss how to create policy statements. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Good to see you, too. So um, you've created a to-do list of money tasks for us to sort of take on month by month. 
through 2022. And um, on the docket for June is creating investment and retirement policy statements. So let's start with the investment policy statement. Sort of what is it and how can this help keep you on track, maybe perhaps especially during volatile times like we've been experiencing. Right. The investment policy statement would be the more familiar of these two statements, but basically it's an outline of what your goals are, what sort of uh, investments you'll use to help achieve those goals, how you'll select those investments, how they'll change over time, and the virtue of having this document and committing it to writing or you know, committing it to some sort of an electronic document, is that it does, I think, serve as a check against making actions at what in hindsight might turn out to be in an opportune time. So if, you know, right now you're a little bit worried about what you're seeing with your portfolio value, if you refer to that investment policy statement and see, well, you know, basically I'm on track, my asset allocation is still on track, the investments that I made are still a fit with what I was hoping to achieve, you'd know not to make any changes. So I think it is a good check on what can sometimes be our own worst impulses. Now, you've actually created an investment policy statement that users can access on Morningstar.com. Um, what are the, some of the key items that belong on one of these statements? Well, I think at the very top would be your goal. And I like the idea of having an investment policy statement, a, a separate investment policy statement for separate goals. So maybe you've got retirement kind of at the top of the heap, but separately you're also building a college fund. Maybe you're also saving for some sort of home remodeling, so a shorter term goal. I like the idea of having separate policy statements, kind of using a healthy form of mental accounting to uh, delineate what you're trying to achieve with each of those goals, spell out your asset allocation framework for each of those goals, spell out your what you're looking for in specific investments, and importantly, also spe spelling out what you will look at when you're monitoring. So what will be red flags to make changes? I think ideally, too, you would uh, let the document be a little bit flexible so that it can live and breathe. So rather than saying my asset allocation for retirement is 80-20 and then having to go in and revisit that every year, maybe say I expect it'll be 80-20 when I'm in my 30s, it'll move to 70-30 when I'm in my 40s and so on, that you get that right out there in the investment policy statement. But less is more when it comes to these investment policy statements. I sometimes encounter... Uh, investors who have built these, you know, multi-page documents, you probably don't need something super complicated. You want something quite short and to the point. And let's talk a little bit about those investors who perhaps already have an investment policy statement. What should they be looking for to make sure that they're, you know, how to make sure that that policy statement still suits their current situation? Well, you'd want to check that the goal is still in place, the target date for the goal is still in place, that the asset allocation plan that you had for that goal still makes sense. But from there, I think an important thing that might change would be your attitude about investments. So it might be that earlier in your investment career, you're someone who really enjoyed picking individual stocks, and then 30 years later, you realize, well, really, I think index funds get this done just as well and do so at a low cost and do so with a lot less hands-on oversight. So you might want to tweak those variables as well, whereas your, you know, your early IPS may have spelled out, well, I'm looking for these specific criteria in individual stocks. Maybe the current document is more reflective of where you are today. 
And uh, pivoting to um, retirement, you know, you've been an advocate for a while and have talked about, and this is less talked about, the idea of also having what's called a retirement policy statement, specifically for those investors who are nearing retirement or in retirement. So tell us about what a retirement policy statement is, what it includes, and why we should be thinking about having one. Right. This is a companion to the investment policy statement. So I think everyone needs investment policy statements as you get close to drawing upon your portfolio, I think a retirement policy statement can be a really nice complement to the IPS. And basically, it's spelling out your retirement date, and importantly, how you expect to extract cash flow from your portfolio, how that will interact with Social Security, so when you might start taking Social Security. You would commit that to this document. It would talk about the withdrawal rate that you plan to use from your portfolio, also how you plan to generate income. So will you use kind of an income-centric approach? Many retirees like to do that, or will you use more sort of a total return and rebalancing approach? And here I think you should also say, what will be my approach to pulling income from my portfolio? Is it something that I'll do annually, or will I try to generate income quarterly or even monthly? I think you would document all of that in the RPS, and we've created a template for this as well. And then lastly, Christine, you've also talked a little bit about how these policy statements can be useful tools when it comes to succession planning. Talk a little bit about that. Right. I think they can be great starting points if you are thinking about your investment plan and your retirement plan and you want to bring others in your life up to speed on what it is you're doing. I think these tools can be really invaluable. I've encountered so many avid, engaged individual investors who are the hands-on person in their household, but they have communicated a little less with their spouse or other family members, you need to bring them at least up to speed on the basics of your plan. And I do think the documents can come in handy there for spelling out, well, here's what I've been doing. It can also be, I think, a valuable tool if you've decided that you want to turn it all over to a financial advisor. It's a great way to bring him or her up to speed on whatever program you've been using to manage your investments in your retirement plan. Well, Christine, thanks for your time today and for walking us through our financial to-dos for June. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Now, Patricia Wee from Morningstar Research Services with Susan Javinsky from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. 529 education savings plans are popular choices for investing for college. Here with me to discuss some of the contribution limits and tax considerations when investing in 529 plans is Patty Wee. She's a senior analyst with Morningstar's research team. Hi, Patty. Nice to see you today. Hi, Susan. Nice to see you, too. So let's start out with the elevator pitch for 529 education savings plans. What are they? Sure. So these plans, what they have is they have a menu of investment options. Um, the, usually the default option is something that de-risks over time. So if you invest when your child is young, the portfolio will be heavy in equities and they'll um, trim the equities down as the time passes so that when you get ready to spend the money, the equity allocation is lower so you don't see the portfolio value move so much just before you're about to spend it. Um, plans will also offer a menu of you know, mutual funds and um, ETFs that you can also invest in. And then finally, there's a place to park your cash. So it'll be like a stable value or an FDIC insured account. Now, who can invest in a 529 plan and for whom? Sure. So um, technically, anyone can open a 529 plan and name a beneficiary. Um, 
you know, typically it's the parents who open a 529 plan for their child, but certainly grandparents can do it. And then someone like me, I have six nieces and nephews. I can open one for each of them as well. And then family, friends. So really anyone can really open one as long as, it, as there is a beneficiary who's planning to go to school. Now, can beneficiaries only have one 529 education plan? Uh, no. So again, you know, going back, so if I have two kids, so I can open one for each kid and then say, you know, they have their grandparents, two sets of grandparents, so each grandparent can open uh, an account for that one son. So um, yes, you, uh, one person can have more than one account. Okay. Now, um, are there annual contribute? let's talk a little bit about annual contributions. Um, are there annual contribution limits when it comes to these plans? So for instance, how much can one person invest in someone's 529 plan? Okay, so technically there is no contribution limits, but a five, um, putting money into a 529 account, it's considered a gift. So it is technically subject to the gift tax exclusion. Um, in 2022, that is $16,000. Um, if you do go over, then it gets counted against your lifetime exclusion. That is $12 million. So I guess technically if you know later on that your estate's not going to be close to $12 million, there is no tax penalty for contributing more. But it is technically under the, the $16,000 limit per beneficiary, per donor. So I can give to my kid $16,000. My husband can also give to that same kid $16,000. Got it. Um, now, of course, more than, as you pointed out, one, more than one person can contribute to a beneficiary's 529 education savings plan. So are there limits in total to how much money can be in a given beneficiary's 529 plan? Um, so each, uh, so say I have my son and I have a plan for my son and my parents have a plan for him. The limit is per plan. So, um, and then generally, so these plans are offered by different states. The states set the limit on how big the accounts can be. Um, roughly, the maximum is equivalent to about a four-year education, tuition plus room and board. Um, on the low end, some states, their maximum is closer to 300,000. On the higher end, um, it's probably like around 500,000 or more. It just depends on the state. But again, it's per account. So for my account, say in, in our state, it's 500000 I can max it out at 500000 And then the plan that my parents open for my child, they can also max it out at 500, which is, you know, plenty of money. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Patty, is there a way that an account, say, can be accidentally overfunded? So let's say there is that $500,000 limit in, in a given account. What's what prevents it from going over that amount? And if it does go over that amount, what happens? Yeah, good question. So they, so the, the plans, they have their cap. And so basically, if you hit that threshold, it will not accept more contributions. But I mean, certainly the market moves. So if the market continues to move up, they're not going to suddenly like just shut down your account. They'll, they'll let the market ride and they'll let the account ride. Um, but yes, they will not accept any more contributions once you've hit the threshold. Got it. Um, and then just to wrap up, are there any other 529 plan contribution limits, tax considerations, anything that investors should be aware of if they're considering either opening a 529 plan or if they already have one that they're contributing to? Right. So the key thing is that you put the money in the account, it grows, and if you uh, spend the money on qualified expenses, you don't pay capital gains on the um, capital gains that you uh, enjoyed in that account. So everyone is eligible for that benefit. Um, at the state level, different states have 
um, have their own rules regarding um, state tax benefits. Some states don't offer any tax benefits. Um, some states don't have state income taxes, so there's no benefit to offer. And then a whole bunch of other states offer different types of um, state tax benefit. And what that mainly is is that you can deduct your contribution when you calculate your state income tax liability. So before you make a decision, make sure you look at sort of what state benefits you might be able to get from a tax perspective. Yes. Sounds good. Well, Patty, thank you so much for walking us through some of these details with 529 plans. Again, they're very popular, are great ideas for saving for college and other educational expenses, but you got to sort of know the rules of the road. So thank you. Thank you. I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, Carol Hedorowitz with Katherine Lynch from Morningstar Inc. on why interest rates are rising. I think it's time to throw my credit card away. Why am I paying so much more in interest? You may be starting to feel the effects of what happens when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. What does that mean? The Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time in three years, in March and again in May. This means that across the board, it's become more expensive to borrow money. So if you have a personal loan or mortgage with a variable rate, that interest rate will go up. And any new loans you take out will come with a higher interest rate. Oh, so it's not just my spending habits. Why is this happening? You've probably noticed prices have risen for a lot of things. This is due to both supply chain shortages and higher demand for a lot of items. Now, the Federal Reserve is hoping to cool demand to bring down inflation. And to cool demand, they make it more expensive to borrow money. So when do we get to the good part of all this? Yes, it's not all bad. Hopefully by cooling demand, prices will fall down so you spend less of your paycheck on goods and services. Your bank also may raise the interest rate you receive on your savings account, but that may take some more time. Can I do anything about this? If you're able to, it'd be a good time to pay off any long-standing credit card debt, but at a minimum, you should anticipate higher borrowing costs into your budget. At least this is a one-time thing, right? No, the Federal Reserve has planned to raise interest rates multiple times this year. While I still have you, Wait, where did she go, and where is my coffee? That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program, and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.